0: Welcome to the Work Minus Podcast. We talk about what we need to drop from the way we think about work and what we need to replace it with to be prepared for the future. Go to workminus.com to see a transcript of this episode, more podcasts, articles, and a newsletter that connects you to the best ideas about work. All right, enjoy the show. Well, welcome back to Work Minus. Today, our guest is Dr. Elmore Lowry. He is the lead instructor for criminal justice with Fayetteville Technical Community College and also the founder of People Builder. Hi, Dr. Lowry, how are you today?
1: I'm doing very well. I hope you are.
0: I'm doing excellent. I'm really excited to talk to you. You have a very interesting background, a lot to tell us about. So why don't you start off with a little bit of your story, how you got to be an instructor and what you're doing with People Builder too.
1: Absolutely. Well, I was born and raised in um, Chesterfield, South Carolina to a single mother um, who worked um, 27 years in a cotton mill. And once the cotton mill um, went out of business, uh, she lost her retirement. She lost everything. And so, I was able to um, live the first part of my life with my grandparents, who was in their s- mid-60s when they began to raise me. And so, and, and being raised on a farm, education was not a high priority mm-hmm. in my family. And we did not realize that I had a major um, speech impediment until I, re- until I entered into the seventh grade. Hmm. And so during that time, uh, I had to go take some speech therapist classes, and on the second day, um, my, my therapist came in and she set a big bag of candy down on the table. And she says, um, uh, well, I say to her, I said, wow, I must have did good the other day. She said, no, sir, um, there's no hope for you. Mm-hmm. And so what, so what we're going to do is we're going to eat candy throughout these sessions. And so as a result of that, it caused me to fall behind in my academics and so going into high school, I was in remedial classes throughout all of my high school career and did not realize I was going to graduate high school until like the last week. Um, and I'll never forget, I had an opportunity to see my friends standing outside of the guidance counselor office and they was getting an SAT paraphernalia and I said, well, you know, I'm just going to do the same thing as well. I stood in line and I'll never forget, um, I entered into the office with uh, Miss Williams and I said, "Miss Williams, I said, which one of these colleges would I be able to? to attend, Hmm. and she reared back in her chair, and she began to laugh, and she said, "Um, did it not tell you that you're an academic miscarriage and that you're not going to be able to attend college? Hmm. And it took the breath out of me, um, because I had to walk back through a gauntlet of my friends. Um, So before I walked out of her door, I made a promise to myself, and here's what I promised myself. I would never do anything else in life but cut grass for the rest of my life because I don't have to articulate myself. I don't have to read anything. There's no major expectations of me um, in terms of, of articulation, and I walked out. And so, years later, um, I ended up going to college um, on football scholarship, and I had a weed eater outside of the college campus. Um, as soon as classes was over, I would just go cut grass because that particular moment scarred me. And being in a position where I was a leader of 115 to 20 employees, I gave them my philosophy and my statement is that we as educators, we have the power and the ability to build a billionaire or a beggar. It all depends on how we treat that student or that person that we're responsible for. And so therefore, we treated students with a high level of respect, um, never giving up on students, because at that particular time, she didn't know that I was a doctor in higher education um, because she never took the time to invest um, in anything in my life at that moment. And so I went on and I, I finished college, um, barely finished college, um, ended up getting my double a double major in criminal justice Um sociology um, you know finishing my master's degree as well as my doctorate in executive leadership and higher education Um, but my point is never give up on students connect them to the workforce college is not for everyone but something out there is for them and so you got to tap into their passions tap into their desires and begin to create pathways That's going to be relevant to their goals, relevant to their dreams, and more importantly, relevant to their abilities.
0: Now, I'm really inspired by this story so far. I want to go back and you use this term academic miscarriage. What does that mean?
1: She used the term, did you not know that you're borderline mentally retarded? And that term just is, in my opinion, it's worse than the N-word to me. Hmm. And so I I try not to use that word uh, because we have so many students who are delayed um, or may not be interested in the academic material. And then they get labeled with that particular name. um, And then you begin to act and function like the name that people have labeled you with. And so I try not to use that word. Um, My thing is I have a deep passion for building people. Um, Getting them started on their life, getting them ready and positioned for their career. Um, I believe in every student.
0: So tell us more about how you, I mean, you went from someone telling you, you're never going to go to college to making it to college, to getting your master's, to getting your doctorate. Like at what point was it always a struggle throughout for you? Or did you find that you kind of build momentum after a while?
1: There was a little bit of a struggle um, throughout. And and one of the major um, turning points um, in my life, um, I went down to South Carolina to visit my grandmother for her. The the last time that I would visit her um, on a birthday here on earth. And my mother was there and I went and, and when I hugged my mother, she grabbed my arm and she never would let me go. And I was like, what's wrong, mom? And she says, son, you know where we came from. And the college has contacted me and told me that they have kicked you out of college for over three months ago. And during that time, I was homeless. I was living in a, I was living in a, a house with no running water, no power, um, none of those things. And so when she grabbed me and she began to cry, she said, I don't even have gas money to get back home tonight. And I put my last $3,000 I had to my name and I invested it in you. And so that did something to me because I never see my mom cry like that. And then to find out that the money that she had, it was an investment and it was placed inside of me and I lost it. I lost all of her money. And so I came back to Fayetteville. Um, I received a job at the Crown Coliseum uh, back in 1997. And I'll never forget this. Um, As I was putting on my apron, I was serving hot dogs and nachos. I was an angry black man. And this Caucasian guy, he comes up to me. Well, he actually, he yells at me. He says, uh, bring me a hot dog. And I'm thinking, this is going to be a long night. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and his friend, um, who's also Caucasian, he says, and by the way, bring me some nachos. I say, OK, these nachos and hot dogs are going to probably be all over the stadium but cuz I'm not going to be I'm not going to be disrespected I'm still a human but as I began to approach these two gentlemen I began to recognize one of them and he looked at me he said oh, and this is the first time that I can recall saying yes sir three times in my life and it changed my entire life and he says young man don't I know you from somewhere I said yes sir I dropped my head and I said, you kicked me out of your college. He said, well, meet me at the college first thing in the morning. I said, yes, sir. When I met him at the college, he said, young man, I'm going to give you one more opportunity, one more. That's it, one more. And I said, yes, sir. And the rest of it was history. I got on the dean's list. And like I said, I I finished up my uh, double major, uh, master's, um, and then I started my career out in law enforcement. I was a correctional officer, moved from there to a probation and parole officer. Um, Then I went to to become a federal um, police officer, and then from that point, I became a a special agent in the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigations, and then I became an assistant special agent in charge in the SBI, working public corruption cases. And then I served three years with the Federal Bureau of Investigations Joint Terrorism Task Force as a criminal agent um, investigating terrorism cases in North Carolina. Um, I worked at ECPI University um, building criminal justice classes as well as homeland security classes. Um, and it's just been a beautiful thing um, to see how drive and pain can push you into your promise or your purpose.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Hey everyone, if you're enjoying what you're hearing, the best way you can support us is to leave a review in your favorite podcast app. Or better yet, start a conversation with a friend about how you think we can make work better. Thanks. I want to talk a little bit more about class discrimination. As Phil, we talk about racial discrimination, we talk about gender in a lot of our other episodes. But as you're moving up through these classes, as you start to work in different places, are you constantly aware of the class you come from and and the background that's yet there? Or does it eventually kind of rub away and you feel like an equal?
1: Well, believe it or not, uh, when I um, began to apply for um, uh, leadership positions in higher education, um, I had an opportunity to uh, meet a a senior vice president at the time that was at Fairfield Technical Community College. And um, I've always, well, I, I haven't always, but during, during that particular stage of my life, um, I dressed very professional, um, nice suits, bow ties, um, and I was working on white collar crimes. And this particular um, gentleman, he's a Caucasian, older Caucasian male. And he looked at me and he says, um, what are you going to do about your people? Hmm. And this is my first time of meeting this guy. And I'm thinking, excuse me. Yeah. And he says, he said, because I'm here with your people and I can't retain them. Uh, I can get them into college, but I can't retain them, nor can I graduate them, and nor can I get them a job. If you want to help me, you figured you figured it out. I said, "Yes, sir." I said, uh, and I thought about it because I have, in, in a certain way, lost connections with my community because your work sometimes becomes your environment. Right. And, and as I began to think about it, and I I wrote my dissertation on African American males and endangered species in higher education. Hmm. And as I began to investigate and, and began to um, write and research, I come to find out that I was I was very much so disconnected uh, from our community. And so, though his words may have been harsh, they were the truth. And so, it caused me to look, look over my life. And so, I became the Dean of college and Career Readiness, uh, where I dealt with GED students, uh, students who were trying to get a GED and... Um, Dis- disenfranchised students, as well as the underserved population, um, students with um, mental disabilities. Um, and so I was able to have some great success there. Uh, our retention rate went from 67% to 98%. Wow. Um, we created a food and clothing closet where we offer them free groceries, um, not only for them, for their families um, as well, uh, baby baby diapers, baby formula, uh, car seats, you name it. We went the extra mile to make sure that we could remove some of those hidden barriers that students face on a day to day basis where you and I would typically not pay attention to those things. Right. And so um, and then from that point, I began to venture out and try to um, build my own company um, called the People Builder to where we can deal with students more so on a holistic environment. Because I realized that institution, we're here to educate students between between eight and five my passion just won't let me stop at five o'clock and nor would it allow me to start at eight. Right. And so I have to try to figure something out that is, that's going to give me some major reciprocity in seeing these students recapture their lives and, and their dreams. Um, it's a terrible thing to see a person just waste away. And when you know that there's some hidden potential within them um, in terms of race and class, yes, there is, there, there's some, there's some major disparities Um, in racing class um, for students who can't help themselves and most of the time people in in authority and power, if they don't see you trying to help yourself, they're not going to put forth much of their investment and so but they, they don't know what they don't know And so trying to educate them about about investments, about stock market, and about 401ks, and about paying yourself and putting money aside, Um, it is a a daunting task for an educator to try to teach content and then teach life skills at the same time. Um, And it seems the the less resources you have – the more resources you won't have access to, right? If that makes any sense. Yeah, <laughs> and so it's so it's a it's a very daunting task for us. And I really appreciate you having uh, giving me an opportunity to speak on your show. Um, but we ha- we all have some work to do, and yeah. we are we're a lot better off than we were. But there's still a lot of work to get done.
0: No, it's going to be a long road, and it's encouraging to know people are committed to this and are doing things about it. Let's go back to a topic that you brought up before, which is about, you know, be called soft skills or social skills, social emotional learning. I feel like there's a lot of difference in how the the social rules of middle class and upper class living as compared to people from the working class that are coming up. Uh, what are some of those social skills that you feel like are most important? It's really not that that. That Okay, the middle class has, has it figured out and they, they know the real things, but it's just the cultural rules are different. And to exist in this, this world, sometimes you need to change and to be aware of those rules that are there. So I'm, I'm going to talk on both sides. One, what is it that you are emphasizing for, for the students that you are providing hope for to say, okay, these are the skills, these emotional, social skills you need to build. And then second, we'll get to on the employer, employer side. If you're hiring people from these backgrounds, what are some ways that you can just be more aware, be more cognizant of things and make allowances for people and, and help them into that system?
1: I just had a group of students, um, a group of um, African-American male students um, come to me the other day and they was asking me about employment and, and things of that nature. And so what I noticed, and not only in the African-American community, but a, a lot of students in our generation now, um, they want to freely express themselves Mm -hmm. Um, that's in their talk that's in their um, the the way they carry themselves and one of the things that I share with them is regardless of how you want to express yourself you're going to have to be presentable to the company or the business or the organization that you're trying to um, um, entertain because just because someone is my color don't make them my kind and so you have to be able to, because I'm not going to have someone to represent my business if, you are, um, if you're not neatly groomed, well-kept, um, your language is going to have to be proper. Um, and, and I realize we all make mistakes in, in here and there, but there's got to be an a element that I'm going to sign my business over to you. Mm-hmm. I need for you to have some of the values and the morals that I um, entrust in. Um, and so just trying to get them to be respectful. I said, yes, sir, three times and it changed my entire life. And when I was at the point to where I didn't have anything else to lose. And so you're going to, our our younger generation is going to have to understand that there are still a bedrock of principles that we have to meet in order to be somewhat, somewhat successful because we don't have everything in our hands right now. And so I'm not saying to use anyone, but you're going to have to play the game. Um, in order to fit in to where you can make a difference. And so, and from a business standpoint, we have to take chances on people. We have to take chances on people. Sometimes we may have to let our guard down just a little and become comfortable with the uncomfortable. And race, sexuality, all these different things are very sensitive topics, political views, Sometimes we to have to take a chance on someone and see what level of talent can they bring to the table. Um, can this person bring the talent that I'm missing into my organization? Because sometimes you may not need the best applicant. You just need an applicant with this one gift. Mm-hmm. And you have to bring them in. And you have to build a team around them. Not only a team, but you have to have a system in place that keep them from failing or keep them from being overwhelmed. And so it is a it's a broad aspect of trying to uh, manipulate the talent that you already have and your goals and your and your future. How can I? How can we work together? Whenever we go into partnership, each partnership benefits some way, and that's where I look at it. Is especially when we're we trying to hire students or we're trying to hire um, employees. How can they fit into the to the grand scheme of things? Um, it's just not enough hiring someone because you feel sorry for them. You yeah. have to be able to bring some level of value to the company.
0: Yeah, and that's what I'm seeing too as people are interacting in, in this. They say, okay, I'll." they see it almost as a charity thing. Okay, I'll hire somebody from a background like this or somebody who's, who's coming out of a really bad situation. So automatically they have this pity for them or they have this feeling like, okay, I'm doing them a favor. And then they expect them to act just like you know, everyone else that they've hired in in other situations without understanding there are some differences. And then, you know, two, three weeks later, they they drop them because they missed their time card a couple of times, or they they said something that they felt like was inappropriate. So we're not really ready to make those changes, I feel like. Do you agree?
1: I I agree. And a lot of times, um, I have experienced this, is that a lot of times people will hire people that look like them, talk like them, act like them, you know, and The good thing about it is, is that, you know, you may, you may increase in strength, but the problem is that you almost um, um, double your weaknesses if Mm. if you just hire the same people like you, because it's just going to be just multiplying your weaknesses as well as, um, you know, it's just unfair, but you have to realize that most of the time people feel comfortable with people who look like them, talk like them, Um, but we got to break out of that mode. Uh, we got to begin to um, explore things um, a little differently. Um, you know, racial disparities is 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 major, and it haven't it haven't made that much progress. Uh, it's just done in a different format now.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely what we're discovering on this show is that it's, I mean, whether it be about race or sexuality or gender or, you know, class background you come from, in some ways we've just put a shiny veneer over some things and made it seem like it's better, but really we, there's still a long way to go with this. Yes. So Dr. Lowry, we're going we're gonna to call this episode Work Minus Hopelessness. So give us a message. How do we give hope to people who need it?
1: When I begin to give hope to people, um, and what I've seen the major change is just giving them your time, giving them your attention, and listening to what they have to say, um, and, and not only that, out of that conversation, you as the you as the listener must give them some something to grip on because they don't realize the power that they have within them and um, the strength that they have in, within them. And so, whatever they begin to talk about, and their eyes begin to light up, then that's what we as listeners must say, okay. Now let's continue to encourage this individual in this vein to where they can understand now that sometimes you don't know what you have until you hear it from someone else. And so my, all my, all my coaching, all my counseling with dealing with students is just basically listening to what they say. And one of the, I asked them just a few questions of who pain do you feel and who tears move you? And once they begin to tell me those two um, responses, then I begin to um, create a vision for them and start moving them towards you and, and give them a bunch of what ifs. What if you continue your schooling? What if you want to be that counselor? Uh, what if you want to be a truck driver? Everybody don't want to wear a bow tie and a suit. What if, what if, what if you don't give up? And let's keep driving and let's and get down in the ditches with the students who are having these insecurities. And these um, unfair disadvantages of trying to enter back into the workplace. <clears throat> Walk them to a job. Use your influence and your authority to help make a connection for them, and not and don't do it for a selfish gain, but do it because the love of the game, and that's to help students, help people get back into their um, life, because a lot of people living outside of their life in poverty, they are they. They're down on themselves. They have no hope, and they just—it's just day by day they're going through it. And we drive past them every single day, every single day. And as educated and as talented we as, as we are, we should be able to have something to offer them. Words are very powerful, very powerful.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of words, give me those two questions again. I love those. Whose tears do you see, or what was it?
1: Who pain do you feel, mm-hmm. and who tears move you? Hmm. Because within those two responses lies your passion and your purpose. And we just need to start figuring it out.
0: Awesome. Dr. Lowry, thanks so much for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Uh, If people want to learn more about what you're doing, uh, where should they go?
1: Uh, They can always give me a call. Uh, My number is 910-224-3578. Or they can email me at dr.elmorelowry at gmail.com.
0: I think you're the first guest to ever give out their their actual phone number on the show. So that's cool.
1: <laughs> I am here for the people. I do whatever I can to help out.
0: Love it. All right. Dr. Larry, thanks so much for being on the show. I, I learned a lot of this. I enjoyed it. And it's pushing me to learn more as we go forward. Thank you.
1: Yes, sir. Keep in touch. And hopefully we can um, um, partner again later on.
0: Hey, if you're the kind of person who listens to the very end, you must be a fan. Now, we are building a team of people who really love what we're talking about who want to go deeper. If you want to interact with guests, drive the content of Work Minus, and give feedback on our work before it goes public, send an email to neil at workminus.com. It's N-E-I-L at workminus.com, and I'll get you connected.